Was adventure better before the mobile internet? I descended from a ferocious day of whiteouts, crampons, ice axes, bitter wind and a beautiful white arctic hair up on the Cairngorm Plateau, down for a hasty dip in a cold river, then into the peace of a mild spring evening in Aviemore. While I waited for the sleeper train back down to London, I headed to the pub. I sat down, had a few drinks and tried to recapture a little of what my adventures were like before the juggernaut of permanent connectivity came along. Every aspect of today's little adventure had benefited from a total lack of phone signal. What impact has mobile internet had on my more extensive adventures? Before I launch into a misty-eyed rant about the good old days, let me be clear that I strive to be as high-tech as possible when I cycled around the world from 2001 to 2005. I had my own website, unusual back then, and it wasn't significantly different to an expedition website today. I had a one megapixel digital camera which felt miraculous to use. Look on the back, that's you! I know, amazing, isn't it? I was trying to tell as many people as I could about my ride and grow my audience whenever I found an internet cafe. I also used the internet as much as possible to sort out the logistics of the trip, finding embassy addresses to chase visas for wild countries, figuring out road conditions in rainy seasons, and so on. The Lonely Planet On Your Bike Forum was invaluable. Cycling through Albania or Bolivia, I would have torn your arm off for today's connectivity. Worldwide WhatsApp? What's that? Internet on a phone? A phone on an adventure? What? And it's also a camera and a video camera. What is this sorcery? Uh, Kindle books galore? Compared to the ludicrous 27 paperback books my friend Rob and I lugged through Japan on our bikes. A spot tracker in dodgy places. Google Maps. Cycling into mega cities like Cairo, Mexico City and Tokyo without online mapping was a palaver. Uh, social media, and a blog that I could update by myself from the road. All of these are invaluable to the aspiring adventurer. They keep your friends and family in touch, they connect you with like-minded folk, and they're helpful, useful, and often free. They are astonishing tools for telling the story of an adventure. So the internet has improved adventure in so many ways. It's much easier to plan expeditions and connect with experts before you begin. There were many more headaches, hassles and delays on my travels before phones with mobile internet connections became commonplace. Communicating and expedition admin has never been easier than today. Consider the lads from the Bombay Weightlifting Club who cycled around the world in 1923. In their book, With Cyclists Around the World, they wrote, We wired for a new cycle but there was a strike of the Chinese workers and the telegram could not be dispatched. Spare a thought too for the logistical struggles of Hein Stucker, who spent 50 years cycling around the world, amassing 100,000 analogue photos along the way. Today's global adventurers can order parts online, check out via PayPal and be on their way again as soon as they've updated their Insta stories on their phones. On some expeditions, I've been more connected with the world than I would have liked. I learned that Whitney Houston had died when I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. 
I was in a tent in Greenland when Sergio Aguero won the Premier League in the last minute. Contrast that to peddling peacefully through a rainy German autumn without realising that 9-11 had rocked the world. I prefer being distanced from the daily news cycle when I'm away. Huge news catches up with you at some point. Meanwhile, all the flash-in-the-pan stories evaporate without worrying you or distracting you. It's a rare treat to escape all that sound and fury. It's why I put my phone onto airplane mode, even on short micro-adventures, days in the hills or holidays. Huckleberry Finn felt the same freedom on his raft, saying, So, in two seconds, away we went, a sliding down the river, and it did seem so good to be free again and all by ourselves on the big river, and nobody to bother us. Looking back, I am grateful for the total immersion that comes from being cut off from the outside world when you have no means of communication. It is possible to get this experience these days, but it requires self-discipline. I carried a 4G phone whilst busking through Spain, but I kept it offline. Years ago, you didn't have such a choice to make. I used to send emails from internet cafes to my mum along the lines of, I'm leaving Beijing in the morning. Don't worry if you don't hear from me until I reach Kazakhstan next month. In Africa, I remember a pickup truck stopping to chat after I'd spent a couple of weeks hauling my bike along the sandy tracks of the Nubian desert. The driver mentioned that he had a computer in Khartoum, so I scribbled my parents' email address on a scrap of paper and asked him to reassure them that I'd be back online in a week or so when I emerged from the desert. He kindly passed on the message. When I sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, nobody had any idea where I was until I culled home from a payphone on a humid street, busy with hawkers and taxis. I'm in Rio. Later that night, a girl gently took my head in her hands and cut off 18 months of my curly hair. Scissors in one hand, caperinha in the other, cigarette between her lips, cicadas and samba and the Southern Cross in the air. My hair fell at our feet, and it was the end of Africa, and it was the beginning of the Americas. And it was the beginning and the end of the two of us. Without WhatsApp to keep in touch, we faded like smoke rings from each other's lives. In Patagonia, I heard rumour of a remote, alternative border crossing into Chile. The crossing was not open to vehicles and did not appear on my large-scale map, half of South America on one sheet of paper. It would require cross-country travel and a boat ride, if indeed it even existed. I could not find any detailed information. Even a helpful police station, after much noisy telephoning and gesticulation to their colleagues in other areas, could only advise me that there is no road and there are only two boats a month, perhaps around the 5th and the 20th. When I eventually arrived at the border post hut, the customs official pointed out a muddy path disappearing up the forested mountain and said, You want to get to Chile, amigo? Just follow the horse crap. <laughs> After I crossed the pass and descended to the slate grey waters of the lake, dotted with blue icebergs, I didn't know when or even if a boat would arrive. I had no Kindle or Instagram to kill the time. Instead, the weight of time felt luxuriant, decadent and fascinating. I had a crossword puzzle, a book I'd picked up somewhere about the pyramids, some tea bags and popcorn kernels, and I spent many hours skimming stones across the lake in the silence. <laughs>
The critical point of the before and after internet debate, I think, are the times like this when total disengagement with one world permits full engagement in the world and the experience that you are actually in. Compare all of that to the task of creating the daily social media stories that I shared whilst cycling around Yorkshire in 2019. So time-consuming was all the photo editing and posting that I didn't read a single book on that ride. Yet on other adventures I had time to read War and Peace in Russia, Atlas Shrugged in California, Anna Karenina on the Arctic Ocean, and so on. This is the luxury of time. Spending an hour in an internet cafe was one of my favourite treats in my early travelling years. They were a tantalising hook to the outside world and home. Those ramshackle pay-as-you-go backroom enterprises were my opportunity to tackle a few admin tasks on painfully slow dial-up connections. Whilst teenagers chain-smoked unfiltered cigarettes, listened to loud music through tinny speakers and cheerfully slaughtered each other in violent gun battle games, I might arrange to ship a bottom bracket to a postal address a few months' ride away, confirm a school talk next month, grin at banter from a mate back home and hope for a message from a girl. You had to hurry to get everything done before your time was up or the electricity went off. Nostalgically, I even cherished the screeching dial tone when the routers needed resetting and the chug-chug-chug of the diesel generators keeping the lights on. There were not so many adventurers tackling long-haul rides back then. I knew of a few legends from forums and still remember their online nicknames, Korax, Traxterman. Yet I had no idea what they looked like or who they really were. You might know, say, that someone was riding from Europe to China and that you had a chance of intersecting at one of the bottleneck embassies in Central Asia. But you couldn't track their progress from day to day as you can now, so actually meeting was a lottery. Today, most expedition websites feature a live tracker showing a person's progress from hour to hour across oceans and ice caps for the dot-watching enjoyment of all the followers back home. I cannot overstate the thrill of seeing a loaded bicycle approach down a long straight road after thousands of miles by yourself and the disappointment when it turned out to be yet another donkey laden with water barrels or seeing a touring bike lent up against a dusty adobe stall selling warm bottles of fizzy drink in a sleepy village somewhere far from a paved road. Those meetings and the excited babbling of news were perhaps my most significant connection in the five or so years of my life I've spent on the road. I hear you. I understand you. Empathy, sympathy, company. I wonder whether, overall, I was more or less lonely by being unconnected for so long. I felt solitude, not loneliness, during the ten days on the high South American Altiplano where the only soul I spoke to was my own, dragging my bike and equipment across the lunar landscape, oxygen-starved, spitting blood, wind-whipped. Nobody on earth knew where I was or could get in touch with me. I've passed many nights weather-locked in my tent without the scrolling glow of Twitter to fill the void. I used to read and reread a slim book of poetry to pass the time. Tent-bound in a snowstorm in China, I memorised a poem while the polluted smear of the city in the valley below was blanketed clean by falling snow. 
I read the lines out loud, over and over, accompanied by the noise of coal lorries sluicing through the slush. The sunlight on the garden hardens and grows cold. We cannot cage the minute within its nets of gold. <sighs> oh well, I sighed as the light faded and the snow continued to fall. At least I'll be able to get a new book when I reach Kazakhstan next month. Yet, I still think that this stripped-down existence is a richer form of adventure than having a phone filled with all its treasures of distraction in the tent with you. Quick question. Do you still have any of your bikes from the big ride? If so, how does it feel to touch them now? I chucked my bike into the metal recycling section at our local tip years ago. I figured I didn't need a knackered old bike to remind me of the open road, especially as I deliberately didn't buy or collect a single souvenir in all those years. I loved the minimal simplicity of that life, so why would I clutter up my future life with stuff? There is though a counter-argument to the minimalism, because I also kind of wish I'd bought a painting in every country I've ever visited and now had a crazy crammed eclectic house. <laughs>